Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Can modern businesses learn to leverage the fact that we're all constantly connected through our computers, phones, and smart devices to build long-term relationships with their customers? Christian Tervish and his co-author have a new book, Connected Strategy, which explores the opportunities and trade-offs of some of the different approaches companies are trying and where it might lead us next. In this Hack the Process interview, Christian will tell us how his academic career unexpectedly led him to become a pioneer in online video courses, what he's learned from his work teaching business skills to top executives, and why we need to find a balance between trust and concern over privacy as we start to rely on connected companies. So today I'm speaking with Christian Tervish, and he is the co-author of a new book coming up called Connected Strategy. He's also a professor of business at Wharton and the host of a show called Work of Tomorrow. Christian, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me on your show, David. It's great to meet you, and it's uh, good to get a chance to talk to you. You've been hosting a show for a while, you've been teaching, and it looks like you've published several books. It's a version of attention deficit disorder. I think there are two types of academics, the ones who go really, really deep into one thing, and they write paper after paper after paper. And I've always enjoyed doing many things, and we can debate how well I've done them, but I have been hosting a radio show on Sirius XM called The Work of Tomorrow. I've been writing books and academic articles. I teach here at Warden and also a professor at the School of Medicine here. And so I try to do many things. I enjoy the diversity, but I certainly realize the spirit of talking about processes that if you do many things, you're never going to get in, in as much detail or depth as people who focus. But that's just who I am and what I enjoy doing. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Although sometimes you can learn so much from doing one thing that it applies to another field and you end up innovating in ways you never would have expected. I think that's a good observation. I think, uh, I mean, the academic word for that is domain arbitrage, right? So you basically take an area that has kind of worked really, really hard on X, and you take the idea X to another area where people haven't done that much work, and suddenly in that new area, you're seen as this innovative genius, and all you did is you just took something from one domain to another. Okay, so between domain arbitrage and your new definition of attention deficit disorder, you're clearly a man who enjoys playing with words. Well, I'm German, and so we, we Germans are endowed with so much humor and subtlety in language that there's just no boundary on that. <laughs> Fair enough, and you've definitely applied that to your advantage. So I noticed the books that you've written, most of them have been co-authored, correct? Yeah, I just I just enjoy working with other people. I mean, it's like a bike ride and maybe even a tennis match is the more appropriate comparison, right? I mean, you can play tennis against the wall and hit the ball against the wall, but the real fun comes out when you have two people on the court, as matter whether you're playing with or against each other. It takes, takes two to tangle. I don't want to use that metaphor because I'm a horrible dancer. But I think there's a real joy when two creative minds come together and you push each other to get to the, the next limit. You support each other. You suffer with with each other when things don't go well, you get rejected by publishers and you celebrate together. And so I've always enjoyed doing things in, in, for for me, two is the optimal group size. The moment you get three, four, five people on board, it becomes more complicated. But I think two is a wonderful number. 
I really appreciate that. So many people who, who go off to, to write a book, they just go off, isolate themselves and work in, in a bubble, creating this, this concept. But with the opportunity to go back and forth with somebody else, I imagine that gives you the chance to get some feedback on your ideas as along the way and also keep yourself fresh while you're going. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we can talk about creativity more in a moment, but I think I have many good ideas, but I'm oftentimes not good at recognizing which of my many ideas are the good ideas, right? <laughs> and if you then are in a solo author business, you just don't, you just rely on your own judgment. Uh, you're just going to basically be, you're going to be very unproductive because you're going to spend all this time on ideas that are not good. I just need somebody who kind of gives me feedback. And as, as you mentioned earlier on, David, this is this idea of, of support, encouragement that makes it just, just more motivating, more fun to get up in the morning. And the book is a long journey. And so, you know, you're talking a year, two years, three years, and having that kind of social element of the collaboration is, is really meaningful. It's got to be hard, though, to find people that you feel comfortable working with. Yeah, that's something very personal, right? I mean, I think the, the, the co-authors I've worked with, Jiraka Sean, Carl Ulrich, and Nikolai Zigakal, are not by randomness my best friends. And it's not entirely clear to me whether they were my best friends when we started or when we ended, but you really need to trust the person to go on to a journey like this, I think. There's nothing more frustrating than engaging in a joint research project with somebody and then realizing that the, the match is just not there. Well, I'd love to double click on your process a little bit and find out more about how you structure the work when you're working with somebody. Is it done face to face, electronically? How, how do you usually organize your time when you're trying to share that responsibility? Relatively little face-to-face, -face, interestingly. I think uh, we, we divide up chapters when you kind of, you, you have a big vision. I mean, that big vision obviously is going to change five or ten times along the way, but you have this vision. From there, you get to an outline, a table of content, and then you assign ownership within a chapter. So you, you say, like, this is a Christian chapter, and this is a Nikolai chapter in the case of Nikolai, Nikolai Zivikov. And then you work along, and as you're working with the other person, and you're checking in, is, is this good or not? And you take real joy and real pride when the other person says, oh, I really like that part. You're at that point, not just trying to please yourself, you're trying to please your colleague. And at some point, what we've typically done is we, we, we swap. Right. I mean, so a chapter that I've might be have been working on for three months at some point, hand it over to Nikolai, and he would do his thing. And so I think that's a really nice way of making sure that both voices of the authors are ultimately in there. And again, you you benefit from that that encouragement and that feedback all the way along. Okay, and dividing it up by chapter, I can see how that makes sense, since the chapter is sort of a unified idea that you can digest and then you can share, and then the other person can come in and give their feedback. I'm curious what tools you use for sharing these things. Very mundane, actually. So I've tried Google Doc with on many occasions, sometimes was successfully, sometimes not so. But I totally admit that there's been just email attachments both and back. We do use Dropbox to just kind of keep a, a sense, keep some control of versions. But I have my whole life, I'm hopefully not endorsing Microsoft too much, but I have my whole life in Outlook. The way I organize, the way I pace myself is I send emails to myself oftentimes. And so when I see something in the in my inbox, I know I have to work on that. And so for me, the, the workflow has best been when I send my partners, my co-authors, a chunk, a chapter, and then have them report back to me as opposed to just kind of knowing, relying that it's all happening in the cloud somewhere on a Google Doc or in a Dropbox. Yeah, it's, it's true. Microsoft can kind of take over your life when you when you work with it that way. 
Yeah, let me add, though, that I basically reject giving somebody a calendar authority. I mean, I basically take full control over my own calendar. And while I have most of my work things organized in Outlook, I, I protect pockets of my, my free time in Outlook that nobody is allowed to tap into. And I just say, I, I'm, I'm busy that day. I'm out of town, which is cool for me that I'm out of town, meaning I'm home enjoying life as opposed to being available for a meeting. How does your time tend to break down around that in terms of how much time do you reserve for yourself? I try to be in the office three to four days a week on average. So a typical week might be three days in the office, one day's travel and one day protected for me. In the summer, as you can imagine, with academia, that works very well. And I might even have like two or three days at home. This right now is a very busy time of the year. We're wrapping up the semester. There are all these graduation festivities, not to mention final exams before these graduation. This is a very unfortunate but somewhat exceptional week in the sense that I'm basically here every seven days of the week. That's got to be challenging also because you're pulling together the timing of your book launch. Yeah, it's a little challenging. And uh, with the luxury of hindsight, you, you would have timed it better. But, but life is always busy. And again, ultimately, I, 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 as you will have noticed in the past, professors always like whining and complaining. We have a very privileged life. The, the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania, has always given me a lot of freedom to do what I like. And uh, when I'm complaining, I'm complaining that I, I have to be in, in the office five days a week. Every normal working person would just go like, uh, seriously? Right? I mean, that is just normal life. So I think it is somewhat, so, so let me whine a little bit, but again, fully aware of the fact that I'm whining on a very high level. No, I completely understand. My father was actually a professor, and he's told me a lot about the pressures of academia and the, particularly the politics of trying to deal with academia. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a tough profession in the sense that there are many people who, want, who apply for academic jobs. There's a, there's a fairly large supply of labor on the market, if you let me express this like an economist. And to get a job at a, at a top research university on the tenure track, not to mention then later on becoming promoted to tenure and, and, and higher academic ranks, it's a tough journey. Again, I've been very privileged. Uh, this is a usual combination like anything in life between talent, hard work, but mostly luck. Uh, you have to always look backwards and just kind of be grateful for the chances that life has thrown your way. It's true. You know, the privileges that we get, the luck that's thrown our way, it's incredible how it sometimes turns out. Was this the direction that you imagined your life going in? I stumbled into that, I think. I stumbled into that. I, I was at INSEAD in Fontainebleau for graduate school. INSEAD is probably one of the top three, four, five leading business schools in the world. has been a place that I really, really enjoyed. It's shaped my life. And at the time, I thought I would go into management consulting and, and have like a more corporate career. And the thing I realized is, so you had on campus back in France and Fontainebleau, you had all these executives come and go for a week. Some of them stayed for a year. But the people who really had a great time were the, the professors. <laughs> and so at some point, I would just ask, like, well, what does it take to get you a job? And they said, well, you have to do this PhD thing. And I did the PhD thing, had a blast, and uh, I will be eternally grateful to my uh, mentors at INSEAD. And then basically four years later, I graduated and became an academic. So once you got into the academic side of the world, you just stayed there, basically. Yeah, I've done consulting on the side, but I, I'm, I'm a full-time academic. So the university lets us come. There's this typical one-day-a-week rule where you can do what you like. And I found it helpful to explore the world, do some consulting on the side, just get a sense of what real life, if there is such a thing, looks like. But again, my heart and my work is for the University of Pennsylvania. 
Well, I imagine the consulting also keeps you in touch with the types of people that you're talking about in the in the works that you're writing about, because you're writing about people who are out there in the world, running businesses, doing things. And sometimes the perspective from academia can be a little bit cloudy. I agree. I think it's stimulating to be out there. I think it's a good balance to have. I think you need to be grounded as an academic in academic theory, kind of in, in, in solid methodology compared to somebody who is, quote unquote, just an executive. But if all you do is stay inside your board walls of the office, you're going to miss the stimulus, the, 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 the trigger for the, kind of another great thought. And so I think any kind of any creativity requires some external stimulus. And by, by just going out there in the world, if you get this stimulus, it's great. And if you get paid for getting that stimulus, it's even nicer. So I think that has worked very well in my case. Other than consulting, have you done other ventures in terms of trying to start businesses? I've experimented with a couple of businesses that I started. They went from okay to semi-okay. <laughs> None of them was a home run. I think I realized that you, you need to be more hungry for that. You need to be more all in. If you always have your, if you have your heart in something else, it's really hard. And I, I quite frankly, might just not be as good as it. I have a good friend, colleague, and the co-author wrote the book Innovation Tournament with Carl Ulrich, who has been very successful in academia but has also had a very strong track record of starting ventures. And he might have a muscle in his body that I don't have, and I'm mildly jealous about it, but I'm self-aware enough that I can do that things that he can't do and vice versa, and I don't lose sleep over that at this point in my life. That's completely legitimate. And of course, when you have the comfort and the success that you have in academia, it's hard to get that kind of hunger that you need to put in the effort that's necessary to start a business. Yeah, this hunger stuff is always tricky. Even in academia, you see people slowing down as they progress through their career. I think I have been able to keep the kind of the drive to start new research papers, write new books. Been in this business now for 21 years. I really, I take joy in that. That is kind of the equivalent to hunger in terms of just internal intrinsic motivation. But again, then there's this need to become rich by starting a company that is a desire and appetite Heck, I wouldn't mind if you would give me, give me $100 million, but it's not that I wake up in the morning and say, I have to make more money. And so that is indeed a hunger that I just don't really sense. First and foremost, I think the book is written for practitioners, so people out to run companies, big or small companies. So that's an audience I've worked with extensively over the last 20 years, both in our MBA program, the executive MBA program. Nikolai and I teach a lot in these executive education programs where really senior executives come to Wharton for a day, a week, or up to three or four weeks. So there's an audience I'm very well familiar with. I very much enjoy being with, but they want to change the world. They want to be successful. They want their business to thrive, partly for intrinsic reasons, because they like to succeed, partly because they want to change the world, and partly because they want to get rich. But I've always enjoyed interacting with these audiences, and I have a great deal of respect for the work that they are doing. And one of the things that fascinates me is their passion for creating something and putting a change that's in their mind out into the world. Absolutely, right? I mean, the way that you impact the world is it starts with an idea in your mind. And then for many people, that idea is, is always an idea. And for people who have been successful, comes that process from the idea to making sure it's the right idea, towards convincing others, towards having an impact. And if you can do this, no matter whether that idea is a venture, a change in a big company, running for office, doing something in the pro-social space, that way of impacting the world, I think, is 
is what we're made called to do as human beings. And I think that extends to writing books, running radio shows. And if I could, it would be composing music or performing arts. And we all have our skills. And unfortunately, neither musical performance nor art in the sense of painting or sculptures have been in my in my hands or in my skill sets. And so the way I express myself indeed is, is by, by writing a book. And publishing is, is elemental to academia, too, I believe. Yeah, I think publishing is, there's a certain, especially on the kind of the journey to tenure, there's a certain pressure element to it where, I mean, there's this famous saying of publish or perish, which has a forced element to it. The beauty of book writing in academia, which, by the way, not that many people do, the book writing is basically, you don't have to go through the stringent peer review process. You can write much more what you like. You can express yourself more. Versus ultimately, if you're writing an academic article in the top peer-reviewed articles, uh, journals, you're really writing for an audience of three or four people, which is the editor and the reviewers. And you, of course, every little word and every statement that you have that you make is going to be very carefully assessed. Again, whereas book, book writing is more freedom of expression, where I don't want to imply that we don't check facts, but your arguments can be driven more by a good story something that resonates with the listener, as opposed to really documenting every little step, every little fact with either mathematical proof or empirical evidence. I think that knowing that there's a large audience out there that you're reaching also has a motivational quality to it. Yeah, I remember reading a case from Microsoft. Mark Wien City, I think, wrote this case from Harvard Business School some 25 or 30 years ago. There was this one quote in there from a programmer who was interviewed, and he said, I'm writing for an audience of one, and that is me. So I already revealed I'm writing at least for an audience of two, which is my co-author and me. <laughs> I, I think I try to do my best in terms of trying to write something that I'm proud of. Of course, I mean, of course, you hope that people will like it and will read it and you uh, will have an impact through the book. But I like to think of that as a byproduct, not as a main motivation. I can see that. You, you've also had some impact, I believe, in the online course world with some video courses starting fairly early on. Yeah, so I had a very uh, interesting experience. I have a former MBA student of mine by the name of Chris Heather. He ended up being uh, one of the first employees at Coursera. And so he approached me at a time when nobody was talking about online learning at all. He said, Christian, I'm working for this kind of funny startup in Palo Alto called Coursera. And I really liked your MBA course, and I was wondering if you would consider blah, 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 blah. So I got to know the, the founder of uh, Coursera, Daphne Koller, and that was at the time when she was, so to say, an quote-unquote normal person who was basically just running a small five- or ten-person startup in Silicon Valley. And so we talked a lot about the motivations and about the upside, and I just liked her passion. I, I found she was a very kind of convinced, made a very convincing case about changing the world through education. And so I said, like, okay, it's summer. I sit down for the next six or eight weeks and just produce, took my MBA course and produced it in a format that was kind of suitable for Coursera. I think I ended up being the fourth or fifth course on Coursera, the first kind of real business school course. And that was a time when Coursera was just taking off. And at the same time, the courses I was, quote, unquote, competing with were courses such as English poetry and Greek mythology. And so if you're offering a business school course there, suddenly people came. And so we have had since some half a million people or so enrolled in that course. Again, I, I you, you take some pride and some joy in, in, in that volume. And at the same time, I think... 
it shouldn't be the main motivation. I mean, every even when I teach in an MBA class, just like last week, I, I taught a class of three, three classes of 60 students each. And that is, of course, a thousand times fewer students, but it's still the students. And I think the kind of the process of teaching, the process of working somebody, be it online or in person, is just at the heart what I think we're called to do in academia. It's fascinating because the opportunity to be there at the breaking of a brand new technology or a brand new service, it's partially luck, but it's also partially that you were there and your student knew you. And that was why that uh, that connection was able to happen. Absolutely. Uh, I, I do. I, I mean, you mentioned though the luck component, right? I had no idea whether this would. I knew from this, the, the Stanford course from Daphne Collar, I think she had reached in the tens of thousands of students that had just launched. So I was assuming that we would reach thousands as opposed to hundreds of students. But there are certain things that you should do because you just feel like it as opposed to doing a careful cost-benefit analysis. So I think that's true. I think for a lot of innovation that you should not kind of compute your return on investment and go through this 10-point checklist on everything, which is kind of the opposite of what we teach, right? But I think sometimes just going by for passion, going for gut feel is a good idea because the only thing I could have lost there would just be six weeks of time. And if you feel that there was an enjoyable six weeks, it wouldn't be a loss. You just, you just, just go ahead and do what you feel called to do. And I imagine, though, that you've along the way, you've learned some tricks and some techniques that have improved your process as you go. I think that is the nature of any process, right? As an operations professor, I say that's, of course, that's why we have a process, right? I mean, when you're doing, when Gottlieb Daimler built the first car some 140, 150 years ago back in, in, in Stuttgart, Germany, he didn't have a process. He just built a car when they moved kind of 30, 40 years later, Henry Ford and others came along with the assembly line and they took that passion of building a beautiful car and they turned it into a process. The process makes things smarter, better, more efficient, but it's a very different game. And so I think as a researcher, you're always walking that line between creating the next new thing and following a process of writing. I mean, I've written enough papers that I think about paper writing somewhat as a process, but you have to be careful that you don't feel like working on an assembly line which is, is, is kind of a, a thin rope to walk. No, that's part of keeping that creative enjoyment in the process as well. Absolutely. So what have you learned along the way that's improved the way that you're approaching video course writing? I'm, the reason I'm asking is a number of people in my audience, I'm sure, have been looking, considering the opportunity or have been trying to create video courses. And I'm curious what they could learn from what you've been doing. I feel that most successfully you keep the staff, the team very small. I remember with the Coursera course, initially we talked with technology people and support people and all, all kinds of people promised us to provide input to that. At the end of the course, the day we had my teaching assistant, Samba Vafa, who was now a professor up in Wisconsin, he was a PhD student back then, and we had me. And the two of us were the team, and we, we just kind of figured out the, the recording technology. We figured out the coding for the uh, automatically corrected uh, homework assignments and the exams. The whole infrastructure was Coursera. I think there is increasingly a tendency to just basically have these online courses be developed by big teams where they're learning specialists and IT people. And I think you have to basically stay in control of many things as opposed to feeling like you should compromise too much on, again, working with learning specialists and working on learning objectives and this and this. I feel it is getting a little too industrialized. The video production quality is also, I think, overrated. I mean, you and I are chatting now with two-by-two-inch kind of video chats. 
And I think we have a very kind of interesting, deep and meaningful, hopefully, discussion. It wouldn't change if, if that picture would be four times as big and the lighting would even be better. Who cares, right? And so I think a lot, a lot of emphasis, a lot of effort is put on, on packaging, forgetting that at the heart of good teaching is really having somebody carefully think about what they want to teach, the structure. And those things are really nothing that any technology or any support team can help you with. That's true. If you don't, if you don't really have the passion behind what you're trying to teach, and you're not focusing on your subject and on your audience and what they're going to learn, instead you're spending all your time thinking about the presentation style or making decisions by committee. You're going to lose track of what's really important. Absolutely, yeah. So you you've continued to make video courses. It sounds like your latest one is fairly specialized. Yeah, that was a tricky decision in the sense that operations management is a very broad course. Of course, I have one Coursera, and again, there was a time in which basically there were no online courses and you could just grab a big piece of land. Now that there are thousands of courses on edX and Coursera and our own platforms, you have to be a little bit more specific in a new course and have a specific message. And uh, we decided to have that course follow our latest book, Connected Strategy, and have that as a sort of say as a bundle where there's a course and a book. If you like the book, you could use the course to learn more, to have a different way of kind of absorbing the content, make it more personal, have more homework assignments, a little bit more guidance and handholding. And so we are launching that course hopefully in the, the second part of this year. We're still figuring out whether this is going to sit on edX or on Coursera or on some proprietary platform. But all the videos are produced and there will be a course. I'm thinking that that sounds like it ties into some of the concepts in the Connected Strategy book in that it's not just a transaction of buying one book and being done with it, but rather creating that ongoing relationship. That's a great observation that you're making there. That's really interesting in the sense that we've noticed this was business school here that we used to be in the business of teaching students for, if you're doing an MBA for two years, very intensely, you know, those two years we would go all out on you. And then once you're graduated, we might give you a phone call to raise money from you and to, to basically keep you happy uh, on alumni status. But the idea of connected strategies is the whole idea of our book is going beyond episodes, right? You always want to stay connected. You want to form a connected customer relationship. And so I think that's very applicable for us as authors, as well as for us as business schools, is that we have to think about relationships that go longer than the moment you're buying a book or that you're taking a course. Is that one of the reasons why you might be considering potentially using a proprietary platform for launching this? Because existing platforms might not support that kind of relationship. Yeah, so what is hard about this in the online learning space is you need to be you need to find customers to begin with, right? I mean you need eyeballs, you need customers, you need learners who are looking for courses. And we can talk about benefits there's certainly this benefit of proprietary platforms like a Canvas or other other platforms. But Coursera is doing a really awesome job in getting your product, pardon the wording, but getting your product, your course out there in front of many potential learners. So they play the role of a retailer. In our book, we call them connected retailers for the reason that Coursera itself is not really producing courses. They're basically just like a retailer. They're buying sources, they're sourcing courses from the universities, and they put them into their virtual shelf and make them available for the learners. And just like in the consumer packaged good world, retailers play an important role in the value chain. So does Coursera has that role in turn in the online learning space. 
And because they have a brand name, people know to go there if they're looking for courses. Absolutely, right? So they have through the brand, they do the customer acquisition, they do some source of curation, also making sure that they have some quality control. Everything that the retailer in the brick and mortar world does would be relevant for Coursera. That's interesting. So one of the things I, you know, I've spoken with a number of people who have platforms that they're putting together and they're trying to build ongoing relationships. Often what they'll do is they'll evolve from publishing articles or a book to publishing a series of seminars to publishing webcasts, creating a mailing list, and then creating masterminds where they can keep an ongoing relationship with their customers. Is, is that kind of the direction that you're talking about? I think at the end of the day, what the customer needs, so to say, the, the business executives who want to apply our principles, what they want or what they need, is they need help in making and setting strategies, designing business models, using technology. And so those things are not just something that happen on one day, they play out over time. And our job is to provide a meaningful customer experience to them so that, that when they have the next idea, they want to change something, that we are there and providing them with a service that is kind of fitting into their consumption behavior that is kind of in the right bite size and in the right kind of format that they can take the knowledge from the virtual classroom, in this case, from the classroom into action. Okay. And so providing them with some sort of virtual space in which they can maintain an ongoing relationship with you would be a part of that. Absolutely, right? And it's with me and my co-author, Nicolas Igoko, but also with their peers, right? I mean, we know from business school learning in general that a lot of the learning is not between the student and the professor, but it's happening from one student to the other. And that is even more so in true in executive education where, again, in courses like this, we can organize, we can provide opportunities for people to kind of basically benefit from each other and form communities of learners. And as somebody who works as a coach, I can tell you, I often get a lot of benefit in terms of learning from my students as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of what we learned in the book has benefited from us talking to our students, participating in, uh, participants in executive education programs. I think that's probably even true for somebody who's teaching at the level of uh, K-12 education, right? You, you still learn by teaching and from your audiences. And it's certainly true in business schools, right? I mean, you don't leave the classroom as a man or woman who entered the classroom. I was wondering about that because it feels to me like there's a big difference between the experience of teaching a course through video online versus being in a classroom with people and having that dynamic live back and forth. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I mean, there is really nothing. I mean, if you think about, I mean, I've not been in this space, but if you think about the difference between a, a clown in the circus or a stand-up comedian on the one hand and a comedian in, in Hollywood who is on the movies, there's a real beauty of getting that immediate feedback, looking into the eyes of people, looking at their facial expression, hearing laughter. And so that is an element that unfortunately does get lost in video production. I'm wondering if there's some way that you can try to capture that in what you're working toward next. It's interesting. I, I feel discouraged. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I feel discouraged by the fact that even Hollywood and movie production hasn't really figured that out. I mean, sometimes what you do see is sometimes it's these kind of hybrids, right, where they put 50 people in the studio, like a late night show or so. 
We have tried that with some of the online teaching. We found the quality when you're mixing real audience with online audience, we found the quality to be poor. And it came across a little like on the cheap, so to say, that you were really teaching that audience and the video was a byproduct. I, I'm skeptical on that, but again, that, that limitation doesn't really make me nervous or bothers me. Now, the production costs of trying to do that sort of thing in a theater environment can also be very prohibitive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've never performed in the theater, but I do think there is a lot of similarity between being a professor on stage in an audience where you have, depending on the program, between 30 and 200 people in the room, and in the theater, there are a fair bit of similarities. No, I would think it's actually fairly similar. And I've even interviewed people who started their careers working in, in academia and having uh, lectures that they were giving to their classes become part of a university podcast system. And they gained notoriety because their podcasts were out there and people could learn their classes that way. Yeah, I think MIT was one of the first ones, if I remember correctly, to basically in their open in the open university framework that every every class would be recorded, making it available for the people who are not there. And again, I think there is some, especially if you put the content out there for free, there is some beauty of the, uh, going back to our desire to impact the world, to change the world. There's some beauty in that in terms of just, you know, that not many people are privileged to come to MIT or Wharton. And so getting that content out there is, is always a good thing. Right. And it kind of speaks to the change in the way that we think about proprietary information these days. It used to be you had to protect your ideas or somebody else would steal them. These days, you have an idea, you know, let somebody steal it if they're willing to go through the effort of trying to implement it. But it's the implementation that seems to count most. There's partly that implementation story. I think partly if you think about what, what, what you see on, on YouTube or what you see with the podcast, as long as you get reference and there is still the reference to you as the father, founder, mother of the idea, it creates this idea or this concept of some form of a virtual brand that you're having. And we can like or dislike that pattern that in our modern society and social media, everybody is kind of becoming their personal brand. <laughs> but that has certainly been a, a trend that we see in academia, right? That in addition to the Wharton School, which is kind of the main brand under which I operate, there are faculty-specific sub-brands, if you will. And in that sense, when you have an idea... You put it out there in the hope that somebody says, well, that was, you know, Christian's idea. And that is part of how you kind of support your brand. I know. I was speaking with an author recently who was talking about picking ideas out of history and, and bringing them back out into the world and how it's not like he's stealing these people's ideas. It's more like he's rescuing them from obscurity because otherwise nobody would find them. That's an interesting observation, right? I mean, uh, the idea, if you think about the difference between an idea and an innovation, right, for it to become useful, you have to take that idea as some form, the idea simply is some form of a solution. You have to combine that solution with a need. And those needs are changing as the world is evolving. And so sometimes it's good to go back into the history books and pick out an old idea and see if it's solves the current problem, right? And so I think that that goes back to what you mentioned with the implementation. You need to find that match between the, the, the right solution to the right need. Right. I mean, arguably, there may be no, no new ideas, but there are certainly new circumstances coming up constantly. Absolutely. So what is it about now that makes this the time for your new book, Connected Strategy? 
So I think what we have seen empirically in business over the last couple of years, A, an increase in connectivity in terms of just what is technologically feasible, where we all have a smartphone that means that we have, we're carrying sensors and communication devices that allow others, potentially the firms we do business with, to always be connected with us. And we have seen the first examples of that. So one of the first things I got interested in was healthcare, where... You would, in the old days, you would be in the hospital as a patient for a day, two days a week, and everybody would do everything possible to kind of keep you healthy and and get you well. But then at some point you were discharged and you were out, right? And most of the time, fortunately, most of the time, patients are not in the hospital. And so during that time, almost all the important decisions that will impact and drive their future health, they're all done during that time. They're outside the hospital. And so if you as a healthcare system want to impact health, you cannot just focus your attention on the time that you have the patient in the practice or in the hospital. You have to hover them, you have to hover over them, you have to connect with them uh, really 365 days in the year. And again, this became possible because of advances in mobile communications, in sensors, in AI. And we saw these kind of new business models uh, emerging. And I mean, we saw, we are seeing them right now emerge. You see similar things in banking and financial services, where in the old days, you would go to your bank and you would either pick up some money from an ATM or occasionally talk with your investment advisor or somebody who's giving you a loan. And now we're living in a world where basically you're, if you're using your phone to pay things, you're basically, uh, you, you have a perfect record of all the money coming in, all the money going out. And it doesn't take rocket science and to start develop some algorithms that help you save for retirements, give you advice on refinancing your loans. And so, again, you're moving from this episodic interaction with your hospital or your bank to a time where you're always connected and that allows the firms to really provide great new user experiences. So that's interesting. So connected strategy is not just about keeping the publisher connected with the audience, but also the fact that we as an audience and as people are constantly connected to each other and to the technologies that are surrounding us. Yeah. So if you think about a publisher, for example, right? If uh, I know, again, we talked about my books early on. I have a textbook uh, with Ben Crowell called Operations Management. And in the old days, if you think about the connection between me and the audience, it wasn't there. You think about the connection between McGraw-Hill and the audience. It wasn't there because what happens is somebody goes to a bookstore and they buy a book. That was all the connection. Now in a connected world, these folks are routed to a digital learning management system. Every time they open the book, the digital book now, I can track their reading material, their, their reading behaviors. Every time in the most textbooks you remember from, from high school, college, have these practice problems, test questions at the, the end of the chapters. Every time a student attempts to answer a question, I learn about their progress and I see where they're struggling. I can, through AI, can, I can direct those students back to the right pages in the book that they apparently missed or misread. And I can provide a much richer experience for the student, which is ultimately getting to a better learning outcome for the student. And at the same point, I, as the provider of that learning experience, Pretty much all of that can be automated in the sense that it can be provided at zero marginal cost. And so you really have this magic combination that the customer gets a more delightful learning experiences on their side. And the provider of the experience can do this relatively efficiently, potentially even cheaper than printing the book. 
you know, five years ago, if I heard heard that, I would have immediately jumped into the discussion about privacy and those concerns. But it feels like today people are much more willing to share everything about what they're doing for the benefits that you're talking, for that delight. I think this element that you raise here, this, this concern for privacy does and should not go away. But again, I think you have, as a company, have to think about what value proposition can you provide to the customer? How can you justify asking for data and then show the customer that you're doing a better job, that you can earn the trust over time? And clearly, uh, the outright criminal and unethical behavior that we've seen in some instances that went through the press, but there's absolutely no excuse or uh, apology for that. And that is clearly not what Connected Strategy is about. <laughs> I would imagine not, although I'm sure that it's something that you'd get into in the book because it's it has their implications for the people that are going to be trying to engage in Connected Strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if, in the book, we talk about the needs. Partly you have to comply with the law to state the obvious. But really, it's an issue of trust, how you show the consumer, how you're learning about somebody's needs. And you're doing really a better job at customizing the products or services that you provide to that consumer. So if you think about we talked about healthcare earlier on. In an early interaction between you and the healthcare system, you go to the healthcare system with a very specific job, a very specific task to be done. You say, like, let me see a cardiologist, right? And they will then take that request that you might send them by email or through a call center, and they let you see a cardiologist. As you interact more with that healthcare system, as you become more comfortable, the healthcare system is collecting data about you, they've done exams on you, they've built an electronic medical record. In these modern days, they might even have access to your Apple Watch. And over time, you really, the relationship changes from, let me see a cardiologist to, I trust you with my health, keep me healthy, please. And for the firm, that is a very nice position to be in. Because now, from an economic, from a strategy perspective, I'm not competing all the time against the other hospitals. You have entrusted me with your health. That is something hopefully not to be abused, but it provides you a competitive advantage from other hospitals who run big billboard campaigns who say, they come to us and we give you 10% off. Once you have reached the trusted relationship, the competitive nature of the market has changed and you are more loyal to the firm that you're working on. That's the whole idea of a competitive advantage. It's interesting when you frame that loyalty, you frame it in the passive voice where you're letting somebody else take care of your health. Now, it's not necessarily realistic because you have to take an active role in your health. Yeah, so, so there is this active role, but I think the reality is that all of us are, and I'm riding my bicycle to back, back home right after this interview, uh, so I'm, I'm out there a lot, but all of us, even with an active lifestyle, have inertia, myopia, biases that keep us from doing what we really want to do. I said one of the customer relationship types that we talk about in the book, we call this coach behavior. Uh, you as a patient, you as a customer, you entrust the role of some parental supervision to a firm so that they can cheer you on, they, they can nudge you, they can support you to do the right things that you know they are right, but at the moment you just might not have the energy uh, and the uh, foresight to act in your own self-interest. Interesting. So I, I, I can understand the coach relationship. What are the other relationships? 
So we have we distinguish between four what we call connected customer relationships. The first one we call respond to desire. So you take your phone, you stand there uh, here on my corner of 38th and Walnut in Philadelphia where I am. You say like I need an Uber, and you press on that, you click on the button, and magically three minutes later a car pulls in. So you, the consumer, say exactly what you want, and you get it. The second one we call curated offering. With curated offerings, you somehow trust the firm to guide you in telling you what you really should know or what you really should buy, right? You think about, like, I want to watch a comedy tonight on Netflix. What should I watch? You could say Netflix, I want to watch movie ABC, but you say, like, well, just entertain me. We want to go on vacation, and you say, like, well, well TripAdvisor, where is a nice beach? And what, what then the firm does, it makes suggestions, recommendations the third one we already talked about, coach behavior, there you are giving the firm even more authority over your decision making, where you say like, I'm not going to ping you, dear firm, and ask for your suggestions. You firm are allowed to ping me, telling me that it's time to do something, right? So the trigger for our interaction with each other is now pulled by the firm. And then fourth and final is something we call automatic execution, where you trust the firm so much that you basically delegate a problem, a part of your life to the the firm and the firm will automatically rebalance your stock portfolio without you even noticing it. When you have a heart attack, the firm will call an ambulance and not asking you for your insights or opinion first. You basically automatically execute the customer experience without any involvement of the customer. Wow, and I, I guess we can think of businesses that are have business models around each of those right now. But I suppose the the what's happening now is the ability to leverage all of that and make it a continuum. Absolutely, right? And so this is really about a story about four different ways of interacting with a firm. These four are not better or worse. We certainly don't believe that everything needs to be automated. Again, you think about that Uber car that arrives to you. In theory, yes, I mean, Uber could read my calendar and send me a car whenever it sees the difference between my current location and my next location in my calendar, and we could automate that. But I really don't want that, right? I feel comfortable for that was the, was the respond to desire. And so what the firm needs to figure out is for each type of interaction with a customer, it has to find out where on that continuum do we provide the service. And that is both a question of the customer preferences. It's also a question on our ability to execute and deliver. That's true. And if that company overreaches, sometimes that can feel quite creepy. That's really a good word, right? So in the, in the book, we talk about the customer experiences at Disney. We interviewed some executives at Disney, and we speak about the balance between magic and creepiness. <laughs> we strongly believe that Disney does really do an awesome job on this. These user experiences are real magic. But again, I, I like how you put it there is if you overreach, it becomes very quickly, it becomes creepy. Yeah, when I learned, for example, that Uber had started building pop-up restaurants based on the expectations they've discovered in communities from their Uber Eats program, they're like recognizing, oh, there is no specialty pub burger restaurant in this neighborhood. Maybe we can rent some space in this restaurant and create one for us, for ourselves to serve the needs of that community. It's a legitimate move, I would argue, in the sense that we're talking in our book about 
the benefits of repeated interaction and one benefit of repeated interaction is I not only learn how to serve you as a particular customer better, I learn how to serve, we call this using metadata, I learn how to serve a market better. If you think about Netflix or Netflix, it does out of all the viewing data that they had, they had so much customer insight that they started producing their own movies. I think the Uber Eats example that you provide here is a, is a great one, right? Where you say, like, well, I learned so much about customer preferences for food and location that I'm now in the position to either provide advice to the restaurants in the area or even more so even create my own pop-up restaurant. I could think of things that are more creepy and if, if they start selling or basically turning around and they're selling your purchase behavior to another restaurant and they say, that, well, look, you like sushi so much that even at a $10 above market price, you still buy it. Then you get a real disadvantage of that data being sold under your name, right? Versus if there's a restaurant in your neighborhood that is filling an unmet need, in my interpretation of kind of ethics or morality, I would not have a problem saying that Uber Eats crossed the line of that one. So I, I personally would not view that part of as creepy, but I think that gets to the nature of creepiness, right? What, what you find creepy, I might not find creepy and the other way around. Sure. And as a society as a whole, where if people's privilege is being taken advantage of in order to support people who have less privilege, is that creepy or is that simply making things equitable? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a certainly a big area in AI these days is to what extent technology is basically cementing or automating biases and un, unfairnesses that have been established in the human society before. But by not having these things happen through an automated method, it's basically taking these things for given, leading to certainly unfair outcomes. It's a fascinating topic. I, I could dive so deep into it. I'd love to let my audience know where they can find you and find out how to learn more about what you've been doing. So the, the good news is if you have a last name like I do, who is Tervish, there's no place to hide. <laughs> you just type in Tervish into Google and you, you got me right there. T-E-R-W-I-E-S-C-H. Right. <laughs> yeah, thank you for repeating that. And it was a perfect spelling, just short of the German accent. My co-author, Nikolai Zigerko, and I, we also created a website along with a book called connected-strategy.com. So connected-strategy.com has a lot of the podcasts from our radio show where we, in, we interview a lot of executives who have kind of gone through connected strategy exercises and they report on their experiences there. We have case studies filled out and we have more information about how to get the book. Awesome. Well, there's a lot more to dig into then. I'll definitely include links to all of that in the show notes. And Christian, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all this wonderful information. It's been a pleasure. So nice meeting you. Thanks for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>